We are taking a much-needed break this December to spend time with friends and family. My second favorite episode for this month is Quran Krishnan. I love this episode because of Quran's ability to explain why the health of our gut microbiome is so important, especially in early life, and its impact on mental health. We also talk about the problems with most probiotics on the market today. I hope you love this episode as much as I do, and I look forward to seeing you in January with some fresh content. We've evolved in a particular way, and we've evolved with a very important cohort of microbes that exist to perpetuate our function, right? The moment we start to think we can outsmart that evolution and and circumvent it in some way or do it in a better way than how we have naturally evolved to do it, then we are circumventing a very important part of the process of our development. You're listening to Eat for Life, the show that aims to help you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. I'm your host, Sammy G. Understanding the complexities of the human microbiome can be overwhelming. Luckily, today's guest has been blessed with the wisdom and skill to explain it in a way that creates greater healing, understanding, and purpose. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Karan Krishnan, the Chief Scientific Officer at Microbiome Labs, as we talk about how we establish our microbiome, why breastfed babies have stronger immune systems, the gut-brain connection, and the truth about most probiotics on the market today. Karan Krishnan is a research microbiologist and has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 18 years. He comes from a university research background, having spent several years with hands-on R&D in the fields of molecular medicine and microbiology at the University of Iowa. Huron established a clinical research organization where he designed and conducted dozens of human clinical trials in human nutrition. Huron is also a co-founder and partner in New Science Trading, LLC, a nutritional technology development and research company. He is also a co-founder and chief scientific officer at Microbiome Labs. Thanks for being with me today. I am really honored to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I always look forward to opportunity to nerd out with somebody on this microbiome. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Kiran, if we could go way back to the beginning, back to the in utero environment and have you start us off with what is a microbiome and how is it formed in utero? So first, let me define the microbiome for uh, for your listeners. So the microbiome is really a collection of organisms. We've got a number of different types of organisms. Bacteria tend to dominate the, the ecosystem, but we've got bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoas. We've got a number of things, a number of different types of organisms that exist within the human system. Uh, the microbiome is defined as all of those organisms, including their genetic elements. And that's a really important part that maybe we'll touch on at some point of the uh, the conversation, but it's all of the organisms and their genetic elements, that entire ecosystem as it relates to the function of the host, which is us. Now, all the different parts of the body have different versions of the microbiome. There are like little mini ecologies throughout the body. You know, your skin ecology is different from your gut ecology, from your vaginal ecology, and so on. And, and the more we learn about these different ecosystems, the more we learn about the purposefulness of them. You know, why are they different? Why is the vaginal microbiome the way it is compared to the gut microbiome and so on? And as we start to understand the players, we really start to understand function. 
So the, the question you asked about the, the in utero microbiome, that's a really fascinating area of study because it really speaks to like the origin of life in certain ways, right? We always assume that certain parts of the body, which includes in utero, uh, the amniotic fluid, the cord blood, all of those areas were completely sterile. Uh, the, the idea we had on bacteria were that in general, we don't want bacteria in certain areas because it could pose a problem. In utero is one of those areas, right, where the baby doesn't have quite an immune system yet. It's susceptible. There shouldn't be bacteria there. So naturally, there's probably no bacteria in that area. As it turns out, we're completely wrong, right? Mm. Amniotic fluid is full of microbes. The fetus itself in utero has microbes on it. Uh, cord blood, you find mom's gut bacteria in the cord blood. So there's bacteria everywhere. And then let's not forget that the baby's going to slide through an amazingly intense yes. <laughs> bacterial rainforest, if you will, on the way out. Now, mm -hmm. here's a really interesting aspect of the in utero microbiota. And we're still at the kind of the tip of the iceberg on it. But, you know, the placental, the placental microbiota mimics of all parts of mom's body, it mimics the microbiota in mom's mouth, right? Which is so fascinating when you think about it. You know, what is the connection between the mouth and the placenta? And part of that is they're trying to figure out how do bacteria migrate throughout the body? You know, how does oral-based microbes make it all the way down to the to for, the forming placenta? You know, how do uh, the lung microbes communicate with the gut microbes, which we see in viral infections? So those things yes. are really interesting, right? So let's dig in a little bit and, and, and put a little thought into why would the placental microbiome look like the mouth microbiome? The mouth is obviously... Our, our primary area of nutrients coming in, right, into the system. Yes, yes. ourselves that way. Food comes in and all that. The oral microbiota plays a very important role in, in, the, in the processing recognition and re response to food. So inside your mouth, in the buccal tissue, so inside your cheeks, along your gum lines, there's lots of immune cells, right? They're called microfold cells or M cells. Mm. These immune cells are very abundant and they are very potent at triggering immune response. Um, they trigger a very immediate immune response to the area. Not only do they do that, but they signal to the rest of the immune system in your mesenteric lymph nodes and your adenoids, all these other areas, they signal to them a response ready kind of uh, signal mm -hmm. that, hey, something's coming in, get ready, we're already checking it out, you know, and, and you need to be paying attention to this. And so um, because it's the gateway for things entering into our system nutritionally, and then also just abundantly from the environment, we have certain microbes in the mouth that play that important role of gate checking the immune system, right? And they also play a role in stimulating the secretion of IgA and so on. Now, what is the placenta? The placenta forms very early on. It forms basically as the fetus starts to form, you know, and from, from week one, essentially. The placenta is almost like the mouth to the fetus, right? Because nutrients have to cross the placenta in order to enter the fetus. And so, there has to be some connection between what the microbes in the placenta are doing for the infant, screening nutrients and screening things that get through before it enters the, the system of the, of the infants, the same way our mouth uh, microbes are screening things that enter our system, right? So it's, it's so fascinating when you think about it. And then there's a mechanism by how mom's mouth bacteria get into her placenta. That part, we don't know yet how yeah. that happens, but... And, and just adjacent to the placenta, where the vaginal canal is, 
the vaginal canal microbes are completely different than the placental microbes, right? Wow, so, that's amazing. Right? Think about how crazy this is. The vaginal <laughs> placental microbes are near identical to the mouth microbes, but completely different from the vaginal microbes, which are right there. The systems are not accidental. There's great purpose and, and evolutionarily design in how these ecosystems happen. You know, so, so that's why to me, it's such an exciting area to be involved in because we are learning so much about who we are, how we're formed, how we function, so much that we didn't know anything about before. Mm, wow. Thank you for that description. And I loved how you worded that we have great purpose. Mm -hmm. And this makes me think of the difference between how a child comes into the world vaginally versus cesarean, yep. uh, and even breast versus bottle fed babies, and how that impacts the immune system. Is it, 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 have you have you gleaned anything from those differences? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, right, it, number one, it illustrates our hubris in the scientific world, in the medical world, right? Um, and, and it illustrates our lack of appreciation for be, uh, of the basics, right? And the basics are we've evolved in a particular way, and we've evolved with a very important cohort of microbes that exist to, to perpetuate our function. Right. And, and the moment we start to think we can outsmart that evolution and, and circumvent it in some way or do it in a better way than how we have naturally evolved to do it, then we are circumventing a very important part of the process of our development. So the, the vaginal birth was a C-section is a great example of that. Right. Th there was a point where C-sections really became kind of more fashionable. Right. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. It was, it was billed as like, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't mess up your vagina, maintains that structure. You can make it more convenient. You know, you can schedule the delivery time, which is better for the doctor and mm -hmm. works well for the family too. And so like when we get to that level of humor mm -hmm. where we go, it doesn't matter that we've evolved to actually come out of this womb and it must be the same coming out, you know, being pulled out through the, through the belly. Um, that's where we start to falter. And then the data becomes really, really clear. Those are some of the things that the microbiome studies have illustrated for us. So the studies show that if you're born through C-section, you've got a, a far increased risk for things like obesity, diabetes, mm -hmm. allergies, asthma, cognitive dysfunction. You know, you've got uh, much higher propensity for dysbiosis. So you have a much uh, higher propensity for having pathogens inhabit your system. When a baby comes out through the vaginal canal like normal, the first inhabitants within the gut, typically after the first month or so, are bifidobacteria species and certain types of facultative bacteria mm -hmm. that eat away at the oxygen that's in the baby's gut, setting up this really important anaerobic chamber in the large bowel. What tends to happen if baby's born with C-section? Oh, and then, of course, the baby's microbiome mimics the mama's microbiome. Mm, right, yes. Moms, right? And then this mm. other part of birthing, which, which I don't hear it being talked about enough, is the defecation side of it, right? Mm, so yes. a lot of women will defecate during the pushing and all that. Mm. Uh, and that's really important too, because where is that bifidobacteria that the baby needs mm. as the most important genus in the first six months of the baby's development? It comes mm. from stool. There's no bifidobacteria in the vaginal canal for the most part, right? So the exposure to mom's stool becomes really important as well. So imagine in nature, 
you know, mom's squatting on her knees, whatever, however she right. does it. But when the baby comes out, the baby's going to be exposed to fecal matter. Mm-hmm. And that's going to inoculate the baby in an effective way. So again, now all the baby's microbiome is starting to look like mom's microbiome as it develops. When a baby's pulled out uh, through C-section, the baby's microbiome, especially the early microbiome, looks more like the microbiome in the room and mm-hmm. microbiome of the doctor and the nurse and, and not the parents. Now, there are, of course, instances where you have to have a C-section. It's either the mom or the baby's life, and that's an easy decision to make. Yes, do the C-section. But where it is being elected to do, we should be doing less of that because it has such a huge impact on the rest of the baby's life. Wow. Thank you for speaking into that so beautifully. And uh, again, illustrating how nature's design is just is perfect. We have this, like you said, this great purpose. I wrote that down because I, I just love the way you worded that. I have a friend who talked about how in the 1950s, it was fashionable to mm. to bottle feed babies. Yeah. It just was uncouth to, to, to breastfeed your child. You know, this is a good friend that I've also worked with as a patient and she's always had immune system challenges. Totally. And her microbiome is, you know, we've done a lot of work in that regard with not just supplementation, but also, of course, diet, because we need that wide variety and our food matter to to, to feed that microbiome. So I really, again, I really appreciate you speaking into that so beautifully. Yeah. You Um, know, let let me mention about breastfeeding. I I, mm -hmm. I didn't speak too much about that. That is one of the, it's one of the most fascinating components to me about, about mammalian and female physiology, right? So breast milk is the only mammalian food that's been perfected by evolution, right? It's, it's yeah. been perfected over millions of years to be made and exist as the first foods for the baby. Uh, again, that shows the hubris where we go, yeah, so what if you make that? Let, we have a formula that has the same components of it, you know? And, and so then I even heard, you know, like you said, in the 50s, even 60s, it became fashionable not to breastfeed. I've even heard that in the, in the 70s, 80s, women would go as far as like kind of t- wrapping down their breasts, compressing them so they don't produce as much milk to stop oh, wow. the milk from product being produced, right? Because again, if you are if you have a baby and you're not feeding, then you're actually going to leak and so on. So people will go through great lengths to not do it. And, uh, and of course, you know, the big, uh, you know, Johnson Johnson, all the big companies uh, that make formula, mm-hmm. try to mimic breast milk, have done a great job marketing that it's somewhat equivalent. But, you know, mm-hmm. wh- one of the things that, that is really uh, clear about it is, Functionally, there's almost no equivalency. And then number two, they've been spending billions of dollars since the late, sorry, mid-1800s on formula, on research, and they still have not been able to match it to mother's milk. Right? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even the amino acid profile. It's something called the PDCAS score. Uh, the the standard PDCAS score in amino acid in food chemistry uh, score of one. One is mother's milk amino acid profile. Mm-hmm. Most things will be a PDCAS score somewhere on 0. 0.98, 0. 0.97, meaning they're 97, 98 percent similar to mother's milk, but they can't quite get there, or they'll shoot overshoot it. But here's a really important component of mother's milk. Mother's milk contains upwards of 600 different species of bacteria in it. Mm. There's a whole mechanism, right, for mom's bacteria to be carried, oftentimes by the immune system, 
to the mammary glands where they concentrate. And then it ends up being inoculated into mother's milk. And then that becomes a major source of bacteria for the baby. Now, here's the other part of it. Um, about 25, 30% of the nutritional profile of mother's milk is made up of oligosaccharides. Oligosaccharides mm -hmm. are prebiotics. And the baby cannot digest it for energy. Those prebiotics are there purely for the bacteria. So imagine this mammalian food that's been perfected by evolution for millions of years. One of the largest components of it is a prebiotic collection that only the bacteria in the baby's gut can metabolize. The baby can't even metabolize it, right? Mm -hmm. That's how important we uh, the microbial relationship is. And of course, we don't see those things. We, we think we can outsmart it and circumvent it and go, I mix this thing together and it's pretty much the same. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and the prebiotic too. So now they, they realize that. So they're trying to start looking at adding prebiotics. But here's the crazy thing about the prebiotics. There are 200 different kinds of prebiotics in mother's milk. Wow. wow. Amazing complexity of, of prebiotics. Why are there so many different kinds? Well, each one feeds different species slightly differently. And so that starts building the diversity within the gut microbiome, you know? So again, there's so much purpose to these simple things that we take for granted and, and it's so easy for us to overlook them and, you know, sit with our, with our um, you know, brilliant technology hats on and go, yeah, that stuff is old news. We've got a better solution here, right? So it's such an important aspect of being human that mm -hmm. I, I, I cannot believe that it's, it, it's not done 100% of the time when you can do it. Of course, again, we want to be um, cognizant incentive. Not all women can breastfeed, you know, as certainly yes. not to the adequate amount that the baby needs. People don't necessarily produce as much as they need to. That might even have a microbiome connection to begin with. But if you have to supplement with 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 formula uh, because your baby's not getting enough food from breastfeeding, absolutely mm -hmm. fine. That's what you have to do. But getting some breast milk into the system is so critical for the baby's microbiome and immune system. Mm. Mm. Wow. Again, you just spoke so beautifully into that. And I, 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 I'm such a big proponent of breastfeeding and I always want to encourage that with the women that I work with. I'm so appreciative of the way that you explained that for our listeners so they can really understand the importance of, of mother's milk and how it is just this cocktail this powerhouse cocktail that is really going to infuse your baby and give it its immune system and so many other wonderful qualities uh, that are a part of that. So, yeah. so I appreciate that. Of course. And then of course there's science studies that show uh, bottle fed babies have a higher rate of obesity and metabolic right. yes. and so on than, than breastfed babies. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there may be some connections with de developmental disorders and, you know, gut infections and all of these kinds of things. So there, there is an impact to it. And, you know, that, uh, that's being more realized now. And that's one of the fascinating areas of the microbiome research. We're definitely, I'm excited. We're going to definitely get into that a little later because I want, I really want our listeners to understand why that is important. So there is a bi-directional connection between the gut and the brain. And when this connection is underdeveloped, we often see anxiety, depression, violent behavior, autism, and a lot of other conditions. I'd love if you could speak into why is the gut called the second brain and, and that whole relationship? So the gut is called the second brain for a couple of reasons. Number one is a lot of metabolic and neurotransmitter controls and products and byproducts are produced in the gut. 
that affect the brain in a very significant way, right? The second reason more often is because the enteric nervous system, so the enteric nervous system is a neurological system that lines the entire digestive tract. The enteric nervous system is only second to the brain in terms of nerve endings. It's got more nerve endings than the spinal cord does, right? So it's a very, mm. very dense neurological tissue. Yes. Um, and, and, the, and the gut bacteria have direct access to the enteric nervous system. And the enteric nervous system is directly connected to the brain through the vagus nerve. And so there's a direct communication two ways between the gut and the brain. And there's lots of examples of how those control physiology. Now, when it comes to dysfunctions, cognitive dysfunctions, things like anxiety, uh, developmental disorders, and so on, there's a couple aspects to it. One is the is the developmental side, meaning there is a um, some sort of dysfunction in the development of the neuronal tissue itself, right? So you're not mm-hmm. getting proper signaling back and forth between the gut and the brain because that continuous signaling affects behavior, affects response time to things, affects appetite, affects mood, all of those things. But that to me is probably a smaller percentage of what goes wrong. A higher percentage in my view of what goes wrong is the wrong type of microbes start inhabiting the gut at high levels. Because just as we have good microbes that can produce things like serotonin, dopamine, uh, GABA, Uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, all of these really important neurotransmitters, they produce it in the gut. A lot of that has an effect on the brain. There are also opportunistic and pathogenic microbes. If they are allowed to proliferate, they will produce neurotransmitters in the gut that go to the brain that cause you to have anxiety, that cause you to have panic disorders. When you're talking about a kid, the way a kid expresses anxiety is through tantrums and freaking out and all that, right? Uh, Adults, we experience anxiety and panic a different way, but their anxiety can be uh, demonstrated with outbursts, what we would call behavioral disorders. But really what they're doing is they're feeling anxious and they're panicked. You know, one example of that is Campylobacter. Campylobacter is a very common pathogen that comes from food, typically from chicken. So uh, it's actually, I think, number one um, uh, pathogen, foodborne illness from poultry. Salmonella is actually number two. But Campylobacter, one of the the effects of Campylobacter when you get an infection of Campylobacter in your gut is a sudden onset of panic and anxiety. Because the Campylobacter sitting there in your gut and producing neurotransmitters that make you feel panicked, it's going into the enteric nervous system, going right up to the brain and, and infecting your brain in your response. Now, why would it do that, right? So uh, again, I, I think about purpose when it comes to microbes, like what are they doing there? Why do they do it? And so on. Um, for microbes in the gut and anywhere else in the body, they're always competing with other microbes, right? It's, it's a very competitive environment. There's, there's no vacant real estate in the body. Every part of the, every square millimeter is covered with a, a microbe already. So if a new microbe comes in and they want to establish themselves, they have to dislodge the other microbes, right? So mm-hmm. one of the reasons why gut infectious uh, uh, bacteria like Clostridium difficile, Strap, Staph, even of course, Salmonella, Campylobacter, one of the reasons why they create diarrhea is because that's one of the ways that the microbes try to clear out the other microbes, right? So when you have diarrhea, you're sloughing off layers of your of your top layer of mucosa, and you lose microbes that way through the dehydration process. That clears up some real estate for the microbe that's causing the diarrhea, right? So that's their little mechanism. Now, Campylobacter has figured out a mechanism to make your bowels go loose by making you feel anxious. 
right? Because remember, we have this right. connection where when you're anxious and you're panicked, then your bowels get loose and your bowels get dysfunctional. So they're trying to fight for their own space and they're doing it through messing with your head, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's just a, it's an amazing evolution when you think about that connection. And that can happen in kids, adults, um, you know, all the way to the to much old, older adults as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate you breaking that down. So often we hear about these types of symptoms after eating a particular food. And so many people say, well, what's really going on? I work with a lot of parents of, of children with behavioral disorders and a lot of violent tendencies, very aggressive. More than once I have heard uh, a mom say to me, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of my son. I'm afraid he's going to kill me. It's really that bad. It's heartbreaking, actually. And when we, we look at the terrain, we see a a lot of candida. We see C. diff, which is especially nasty. We see a lot of activity there that are, you know, creating these symptoms. Also some forms of schizophrenia we know are directly related to that GI inflammation. And um, of course, autism, you know, there's so much research and so much that we know more that we know now than we didn't even two, three years ago uh, with regard to autism. Every autistic child I work with has severe GI distress. Oh. And you see that as well. I mean, that's a big yeah. part of it. The research shows yeah. that. I mean, I think there was a Stanford study that that looked at it and they found upwards of 90% of um, kids on the spectrum present with, with severe GI issues as well. So yeah, it's all connected. And they also know that there is an autism kind of gut signature where you have elevated levels of Clostridium tetanine, Clostridium bolte, you know, and these are toxin producing Clostridia. You know, and, and, and so it's and there's lots and lots of connections between the gut microbiome dysfunction and, and uh, the expression of ASD symptoms. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a gut issue. If we can take it a, a little bit further and, and get more into the mental health side and the behavioral side and how the microbiome impacts that fight, flight, freeze response and the ability to handle stress and how that's wrapped up into the limbic system. Could you speak into that a little bit more? So what, one of the connections there is the, the HPA axis, right? So the hypothalamic adrenal pituitary axis. What, what we're, what's being discovered now is that the HPA axis and the tonality of the HPA axis is controlled in part by the types of microbes that exist in the gut. So the triggering of flight or fight is actually dependent in certain degree to the types of microbes that exist in the gut. And flight or fight can be triggered much more often when you have a dysbiotic gut. So that's this just goes back to our all our, what we say in so many cultures, like we, I've got a gut feeling about that, or that makes me sick to my stomach. You know, all those sayings that we've had, like, oh, I've got a bad gut feeling about that or a good gut feeling. You know, all of these things is a reason why we connect the gut with feelings is because the gut controls the tonality of the HPA axis. Your ability to handle stressful um, situations comes from the diversity and the complexity of your microbiome. So let me give you a quick example of how that can all get tweaked out. When we express, when we experience stress, like an external stressor, one of the first things that starts to kick off is epinephrine to noepinephrine, right? That's a, those are part of the stress hormone cascade. One of the things that, that studies show on the microbiome is when you increase epinephrine and norepinephrine in the body, you actually start proliferating certain pathogenic bacteria. So there are pathogenic bacteria that sit in your system that are sitting there and then they're opportunistic in a sense because they're waiting for the system to change in order to start 
proliferating because they're not very strong pathogens. So they're waiting for the system to become compromised, right? And they've learned over time that one of the signals that indicates a compromised host is stress hormones. So they don't turn on their virulence genes, their genes that make toxins and all that, until they detect an elevated level of stress hormones. Because what is getting compromised when your stress hormones are high? Your immune system. This is the signal they've learned to look for. They sit there, they uh, hang out among the rest of the crowd in within the gut. They don't actually produce anything negative or bad until the stress hormone levels start to go up. Then they go, hey, the host is compromised. This is our turn to multiply. So then they start producing their toxins and all that to try to get rid of the bacteria around them so they have more real estate to multiply. But one of the problems is the toxins they tend to produce also drive even more anxious feelings and panic disorders and behavior. Basically, what then tends to happen is an external trigger of stress or anxiety can come in from externally. You know, let's say this is, you know, uh, the wilderness and we're walking, taking a hike and you see a mountain lion, right? That's going to create, create some stress, normal stress. So then all of a sudden your body sees that you kick in your flight or fight response or your HPA access. Um, because of that flight or fight response, then your epinephrine, norepinephrine, and all that go up. Uh, your adrenal, your adrenaline hormones, your adrenaline goes up, your heart rate goes up, all of these things go up, you get lots of perfusion. And then the microbes in your gut start sensing that. And then they start to proliferate and they start to produce more toxins that make you even more nervous. So under a normal circumstance, when you have a diverse microbiome, where the pathogens aren't being upregulated by your sense of stress, what tends to happen is you see the stress, you get away from it, and then your body can come back down, right? In the case where you have a dysfunctional microbiome, you see the stress, your stress level goes up, the microbes go up, they keep producing toxins that make you more stress. And then even when that stressor goes out of the picture, now you're still elevated because the microbes are creating the stress response. Yeah, it's like right? a no-win situation, yeah. Right. So you can't come down from it because one of the things I always try to explain to people is perfectly normal to experience stress, experience some anxiety. That's Those are baked into our system as defense mechanisms. Yet we have taken what would be um, survival uh, instincts now and we are we are imprinting them on things that won't actually kill us right most of that flight or fight response and all that is there to help protect us from getting killed by something uh as we evolved in the wilderness now we might get that same response from somebody cutting us off on the highway or doing something <laughs> egregious something that pisses yes. us off right <laughs> same kind of like adrenaline flight or fight response if your microbiome is not healthy then that response keeps going and perpetuating you can't come down from it so now you're, you're, you're a person that gets stressed, but it's not about getting stressed. It's about, can you come back down from the stress? Nope, you can't. Now you're staying elevated. And the, as long as you stay elevated, those microbes are still perpetuating. And because they're still perpetuating, they're keeping you elevated. Now it's harder and harder and harder for you to come down. It's not about not getting stressed. It's not about not getting anxious. Everyone gets stressed. Everyone gets anxious. It's about, can you come down from that state, right? We are supposed to go through these fluctuations in emotions. We're supposed to be elated and then come down to normal. We're supposed to be fearful and anxious and all of this stuff, but then come back to your baseline. When your microbiome is dysfunctional, you cannot come back to baseline effectively. That will have a long-term egregious effect on your system. This is so powerful as well, Karen. And as you know, because everyone, and especially right now with what we're up against, our world is up against 
and, and a lot of stress. And then everyone's dealing with, you know, home stress and homeschooling and so forth. Stress is something I talk about a lot. And, you know, there are obviously techniques. That's another show. But the ability to recognize and then have some form of technique, whether it's breathing or or walking away or being out in nature or meditation or wh whatever works for the individual, but having something to assist in that process, because as you beautifully shared, we're human, you know, we're, we all, we all struggle with things. None of us is perfect and, and things are always going to come up. But I think it's really important to hear that because I see often and, and, I'm curious to know if you see this as well. We have this quick fix world that we live in and it's like, well, just give me the pill. Just give me this quick fix and I'll be fine. And I always want to share with people that in the work that I do with diet and nutrient therapy, we also want to look at lifestyle factors. And with that in mind, I'm really curious, how do, how do environmental factors and things like antibiotics, um, herbicides, uh, personal care products, things like that. You know, what's interesting to me is, you know, when we see with the use of certain herbicides and an, an increase in genetically modified foods, things like soy and corn, and the links that those have to the microbiome, I'm curious, what, what do you see in that regard? Our environment absolutely dictates our ecosystem, right? So one of the things I, I try to impart on people is that it's it's not just the microbiome in us, but it's it's the microbiome, the biome on us and the biome around us that has a complete effect on our system. We have to think of ourselves as a walking, talking rainforest. And we are, you know, in, in constant osmosis with the environment around us. We are putting out microbes and we're getting back microbes. That includes with the people that you spend time with, right? So uh, let me give you one, one quick instance on that, uh, just this a slide tangent. But there was a great study published, uh, by, I think by a researcher, Johns Hopkins, that showed that, um, and here's what he did. He, he took people that were prescribed an antibiotic and then uh, prior to them starting the antibiotic, he had them come in and took microbiome samples and then he took microbiome samples while they were taking the antibiotic. And then he took microbiome samples monthly all the way up to six months after the antibiotic, right? And what he was able to show was that there was a significant deviation from their baseline during the antibiotic therapy, which is not surprising. We can all, we can all ascertain that. But what was surprising is that it, it persisted, that deviation persisted for up to six months after, right? So we, now we know antibiotics do impact the microbiome in a significant way, and it does so for a period of time. A previous study looked at a single uh, course of clindamycin, seven days, can uh, create deviations in microbiome up to two years if you're not actively trying to repair it. And so, so it did that. Now, the second part of the study that was really fascinating is he also followed the microbiome of individuals that lived in the home of the person that took the antibiotics, not and they did not get the antibiotics. He saw they had the same kind of deviation in their microbiome, even though they didn't even take the antibiotics, just the fact that they're living in the house with wow. somebody with the antibiotics. Wow. Right? So the influence is measurable, right? Yes. So in practical sense, if I'm in a household and I've got four or five family members living there, one family member, like a child, for example, constant chronic ear infections and sinus infections, and they're, they're on multiple antibiotics, of course, that, that of course disrupts their microbiome, but it also disrupts mine as, as the parent. And 
you know, the spouse and uh, the sibling, it, it affects everybody. In, the, in each person's household, each person's little micro environment, it impacts what their outcomes look like. And so you have one person, if you're living with a roommate and you are ultra healthy and you're running all day and eating all kinds of good stuff and your roommate's sitting on the couch and eating Cheetos all day long, that roommate's going to impact your microbiome, right? So we really have to think about what we surround ourselves with and how that has an impact on us. We are in constant osmosis with the world around us, with our micro environment around us. What is happening right now in Southeast Asia has zero impact on me, right? Uh, on my microbiome, I'm talking about. But what is happening in the other rooms of this house, what's happening in my front yard, in my backyard, what's happening in my work environment, all of those things do have an impact on me. And so you have to be very conscious of that. So now, when we look at absolutely devastating the microbial ecology of our environment by adding, you know, known antibiotics like Roundup and glyphosate or, um, you know, actazine and all these other herbicides and pesticides, what we're doing is we're decimating the, the ecological system around us. And that completely attenuates that exchange that constantly happens, right? And so now we may be putting out microbes, but we're no longer getting appropriate microbes from the outside world um, anymore. In fact, we may be getting dysfunctional microbes from the outside. Exactly, world, right? yes. And then if we happen to get that stuff in our system through the food and all that, it will systematically dismantle our own ecosystem. And that that's not just the herbicides, pesticides, and things that are around you uh, uh, in your food, in your water. That also is the stuff that you put on you, you know, all your personal care products, right? If they are full of chemicals and preservatives and antimicrobials and all that, it's going to harm your ecosystem on your skin. That has I was going to say the skin, yes. Skin and, and it absolutely has an impact on your gut. It has an impact on the other people around you. Um, that exchange is so important. Uh, and that's one thing I want people that like to visualize this idea. Remember in, uh, in the Peanuts, Pigpen, I think is his name, right? He always walked around with this dark cloud of stink. And they show it by these like squiggly lines all around him all the time. That's what we are. We are have all these squiggly lines around us all the time. We've got this aura of microbes around us, and we exchange those 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 microbes quite readily. In fact, there are microbes that live in your gut that increase your your um, altruistic behavior. Because why do they do that? You know, and again, I go back to purpose. Why would they make neurotransmitters that makes you more altruistic? Well, because they want you to go and interact with other humans. So they can transfer from you to the next human and then to the next human and so on, right? It's so um, magnificent, right? So when we put ourselves in an environment that is not conducive to the way we are developed, uh, we're really shooting ourselves in both feet. The, the, what I tend to say is we are a microbial construct, right? We are absolutely a microbial construct. And we've put this beautiful, elegant microbial construct in an antimicrobial world. And so what we've done is we we are humans. We've built an anti-human system to exist. In. Hence, we drive all kinds of disease. Absolutely. Yeah, wonderful analogies. I love the peanuts uh, an analogy. Uh, again, what we don't see, we think out of sight, out of mind, it's not going to affect me. This isn't going to bother me. Uh, and you just, again, so beautifully illustrated that, yeah, it does matter. A air quality, water, what you, the kind of water you drink. I, I still know a lot of people that drink tap water here in California. 
it frightens me quite, quite honestly. I'm just so particular about all of those things. Uh, and even changing up someone's water has had, I, I've seen across the board, tremendous effects on them before we even address diet and the nutrient piece. If you've ever wished you could just find that one thing that's causing your suffering, you're not alone. We've all hoped for a magic pill that will fix that one root cause of our pain. But I'm here to tell you there's no such thing as one root cause. I blame influencer marketing and Dr. Google for selling us on those magic pills. They claim to have all the answers to our health problems, yet few people get well from their guidance. In fact, most of the time, I see people getting worse from their guidance because they keep falling down the rabbit hole of information overload that may or may not apply to them. This process is terribly draining on your pocketbook as well as physical and emotional health, not to mention what can happen if a diet or supplement is not appropriate for your chemistry. If you're ready to start the healing process, I invite you to book a complimentary consultation with me to see how I can help you overcome things like hormonal imbalances, ADHD, chronic fatigue, depression, anxiety, brain fog, and digestive distress. Go to eat4.life, then click the work with me tab at the top to book your complimentary consultation today. You know, again, going back to where we are with COVID and immunity and even things like cancer, like what what's the connection there between our microbiome and our immune system and how cells divide and things like that? One of the things that resulted with, uh, for me, with regards to COVID is I've been invited to lots of lectures on the microbiome and immunity, right? So, um, which has been really exciting for me. And I love being able to share that information to help people really understand how their immune system works. Throughout those that lecturing, I've, I've made two big claims. One is that our immune system would cease to exist as we know it without our microbiome. And number two, our microbiome is essentially the neighborhood watch for the immune system, right? So let me explain those two things. We've got loads and loads of different types of immune cells, right? So we've got like dendritic cells, macrophages, eosinophils. We've got, um, you know, natural killer cells, T cells, B cells, all of these amazing cellular machines that are out there to defend us so roaming around our body and, and concentrating in certain areas doing amazing things most of them are producing the bone marrow and then the some cells like the th the t cells are producing the thymus right but here's the critical thing when they're produced by our system they are produced as really naive immature cells they're like little baby soldiers. They don't know what to do, right? Imagine if you if you think about it, the analogy with the military, which I use that a lot with immune system to try to explain it. Imagine that you are a mom and you've given birth to the child, right? The child is not ready to be given a gun and a helmet and go, okay, go fight child, right? So you do your job on the birthing part, but there's a maturation that has to occur. And then there has to be a training component to it, Right. With the immune system, that's the same exact thing. There's a birthing of the immune cells through the bone marrow and the thymus, but then the maturation happens in other immune tissues that are controlled and, and uh, driven by the microbiome. So the maturation of your immune cells for where they learn how to target uh, microbes, where they learn what microbes to target, when they pick up all of that information and training, that all occurs in immune tissue that is controlled by the microbiome. 
So when they take mice, right, and you can do this with no biotic mice, they're called sterile mice. When you, when you raise mice sterilely, meaning they have no microbiome, they produce immune cells because their bone marrow and their thymus is working. But then when you introduce an infection, their immune cells cannot respond at all. Their immune cells literally do nothing. They sit there on the sidelines, confused, not knowing what's happening, right? So, so, the, the, so that part is really important. So that's why I say your immune system would cease to exist as you know it without your microbiome, because without your microbiome, your immune system would have no training, no maturation, no proliferation when it's time to proliferate, and no tutoring to understand what is the ecosystem that you live in and what it should be paying attention to and targeting, right? So that's the first part. The second part is the claim that your microbiome is a neighborhood watch for your immune system, right? So this part will take a little imagination. So I want to use analogies. Inside your body, is the largest barrier system that you that you have, and it's far bigger than you can imagine, right? So we used to think of our skin as the largest barrier and largest organ for the longest time. Our skin is about two square meters in surface area, right? Two square meters in surface area is maybe somewhere around 200 square feet. But when you compare that to the mucosal system that's inside the body, that's a gel-like layer that covers every little square inch of the inside of your body. It covers every orifice that has the capability of letting things into your body. So your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, your your urogenital tract, even through your skin, everything that enters your body enters into the mucosal system. Large part of the mucosal system is in your gut. The mucosal system is over four thousand square feet in surface area. Think about a 4,000 square foot house and every square millimeter of that mucosal tissue is covered in microbes, your own commensal microbes, viruses, bacteria, and so on. There are about 40 trillion microbes that inhabit that entire mucosal system. So let's think about it in, in, a, in a way that we can, we can um, you know, imagine. So you, you've got a 4,000 square foot home, Every square millimeter of that floor is covered in microbes, right? That is the area that your immune system is trying to survey. So think about the job of the immune system. Your immune system is trying to detect the presence of microbes that are deleterious to your system in a sea of microbes. And the immune system, you've only got about 200 million immune cells to survey a surface area with, 200, with 40 trillion uh, microbial cells. It's a 200,000 to one ratio, right? So one analogy I want to give you so people really, really understand this, this task of the immune cells. Um, imagine you're at a music festival, and of course, you can only imagine it because it's not happening right now. And, and in this huge, massive field, there are 200,000 people, right? There are 200,000 people. It's a massive event. Among those 200,000 people, there may be five that are potentially harmful to the, to the people around them. Right? They might be carrying something egregious or they're, who knows, they're doing something bad. You are the lone security guard whose job it is to find those five out of that sea of 200,000 people in this festival, right? Wow. How in the world would you ever do it? Exactly. That's the job of the immune system, right? You could spend the entire time going and tapping every single person you come across on the shoulder, look at them, analyze them. Are they the bad ones? You would never get to a fraction of the entire population. That is the job of the immune system. So how does the immune system do it? 
Well, if you were the security guard, the only way you could do it is if the other 199,995 people there were all radioed into you and also keeping an eye out for you for problematic things. When they see something, they go, hey, 10-4, um, come on over here. I see something problematic. Then you can make a beeline for that one location, right? That's exactly what the microbiome does. It's absolutely impossible for the immune system to survey your entire system. So the microbiome in that local environment, when a new virus, a new pathogen, something enters that environment, it disrupts that environment to where the microbiome sends signals to your immune system to recruit your immune system to that location. So without the microbiome doing that function for you, your immune system would have very little chance of ever finding an invading pathogen. If you breathe in a virus and it goes in and it's starting to replicate in your, in your, nos uh, your nostrils, in your upper respiratory tract, it would be a very long time before your immune system ever detected it unless the microbes in that, in that area start signaling to your immune system that, hey, something is here, you need to come check it out, right? And, and here's another nuance to that, which is really interesting, when, especially when you look at it with the respect to COVID. The signals that the microbiome uses in order to alert your immune system are inflammatory cytokines, right? So they use cytokines like interleukin-6, 1-beta, TNF-alpha, and so on. Those are essentially flares, really loud flares, that your immune system can detect and, and hurry to that area. Now, they, your microbiome sitting there, something comes in, it starts shooting off these flares. But if your whole system is full of those inflammatory markers, your immune system takes a very long time to notice it. The flares that are being shot up by the microbiome because of that localized infection gets drowned out by all of the other inflammation that's going on in the body. That's why when you have chronic inflammatory conditions, you are far more susceptible to a, to a dysfunctional response to something like a virus. Take COVID, for example, right? If you are diabetic, you have a tenfold increased mortality rate than a non-diabetic, right? If you have heart disease, it's somewhere around sevenfold increase. If you have hypertension, you have four to five-fold increase. If you're obese, you have four to five-fold increase uh, mortality against COVID. Why is it that these are the conditions that are associated with the worst outcomes? Well, these are conditions that have chronic low-grade inflammation all over the body. Same signals that the microbiome is going to try to use to alert your immune system are flying off all over the body, all over the place. So the microbiome, so the immune system being a fire squad waiting for the fire alarm to sound to get to a location, they are hearing fire alarms all over the body all the time and will not get to all of those locations. So in those people, a virus can come in, proliferate for much longer, and their viral load ends up being much higher. Now, when the immune system does finally recognize it, then it's going nuts. Then it just turns on the innate immune response, which is a very inflammatory response. And then the immune over-response to the over-replication of the virus is what creates that whole cytokine storm component to it. So it's so critical for your immune system to work. It, you know, we, we know vitamin C is important. We know zinc. We know vitamin D. We know now B vitamins with, with respect to COVID. Those things are all very important, and they do facilitate certain mechanisms within the immune response. However, none of those things will make up for a dysfunctional microbiome, right? 
So you, you could take all the vitamin C in the world. It's not really going to help you if your microbiome is completely compromised. So in order to get the most abundant immune protection and allow your immune system to work the way it's supposed to, you've got to have a healthy, diverse microbiome and take those things. And that way you're protected. Mm. I think that's going to be really powerful for our listeners to understand why people are su more susceptible than others to this virus. And, and just so much of the diversity that we're seeing with respect to how this vi virus is kind of targeting people, if you will. And I want to talk about probiotics now. But one thing that really irritates me about probiotics is the spinning of narratives with uh, clinical sounding jargon to make them sound great. But there's often not a lot of data to support the marketing. And what impresses me about microbiome labs is how much you actually put into the research and the verification. So I'm curious, can we just dive right into why research is important and why spore-based probiotics are different in helping to recondition the gut? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we first started this company, part of the reason why we started it is because we truly believe that, that probiotics and microbes are a, a massive solution to, towards health and wellness, right? But they have to be studied. You have to understand what they do in the system in order to really utilize them towards any sort of benefit. This whole lumping together of just probiotics in general and, you know, and then seeing these kitchen sink formulas that have 25 different strains in it at like random doses, right? 200 billion, 300 billion and so on. Like there's zero rationale behind any of that. You know, what do those strains do in the system? How do they, the big question is, how do they impact the native microbes in your gut, right? That's the part that we really need to understand because no matter how high of a dose you have in a probiotic, you're taking a 200 billion CFU probiotic, which sounds like a big dose, you're putting it in a sea of 40 trillion organisms, right? So in order for it to have any sort of effect, it has to have some sort of influence on the larger picture of the ecosystem in your in your gut. Now, does it have a negative effect? We don't know if you if you don't study it. Does it have a positive effect? And what is the positive effect? We don't know unless you study it. So it did really drive me crazy as somebody that has a science forward mind uh, thinking and mindset that there are so many products being formulated with just generic language around like supports digestive health, supports immune health, it does this. How do you know it does that? You know, just because it's bacteria doesn't mean it's actually going to do anything in your system, right? We came and tested the 40 top probiotic products in the market. We found that like 98% of them just died in the stomach anyway. You know, the stomach acid just obliterates it. And so it's like, what are we really giving people here? You know, we're just giving them a bunch of dead bacteria and then all of the genetic elements of those dead bacteria. Does that continuous exposure of genetic elements of those dead bacteria, does that somehow affect your your metabolic gene pool in some way you know because the microbiome gene pool affects over 90 percent of all your metabolic function all the metabolic function of being human comes from microbial genetics rather than our own genetics so how are we messing up that that system right so so such basic questions were not answerable by what people were putting out there. And and the whole idea of like more is better and more strains, more CFUs, that means it's more effective. And then the craziness around the refrigerated stuff, which just drove me nuts. You know, <laughs> it's like yes. I you know, I, I I love kind of messing with with store clerks and, and companies where I go and I'd be like, so what's your best probiotic? And they'd say, Oh, this stuff in the refrigerator, that's the hot, <laughs> right? 
They're like, <laughs> this is, and it's like, that's why it's 75 bucks or something crazy. Yes. <laughs> and then I start quizzing them and I'm, I'm super annoying that way. Um, <laughs> but I, I start quizzing them and I'm like, so why are they in the refrigerator? <laughs> well, because it's a live culture. You got to keep it live. And so you got to keep it refrigerated. And when you take it home, quickly put it in the refrigerator. Don't leave it in your car or on the, on the counter. Okay. So what you're saying is that if, it, if I leave it at 70 degrees here at room temperature, it's going to start to die. Yes, yes, it will. So put it in the fridge. Okay, what about 98.6 degrees in the body and going through an acid wash in the stomach? If it can't sit this very balmy 70 degrees in the shelf, how can it survive that? And then there's never any answer to it. You know, so right away I knew that there was some real inherent problems. And And my big concern, to be honest, is that... At some point, people are going to start putting research together that shows that the vast majority of probiotics in the retail space don't really do anything. And we're already seeing some of that research. There was a big study out of the Israeli Academy, I think it was last year, that showed that if you take a probiotic with an antibiotic or after an antibiotic, it actually slows down the recovery of your natural bacteria, right? And, and, and then the, the American Gastroenterology Society, I believe it is, have put out a recommendation, do not recommend your patients take probiotics with antibiotics. That's the kind of stuff that will really hurt the industry in general. And that's the kind of stuff that has been driven by this nonsense product development concepts. And, and why is it that it would the study would have showed that? Is the study flawed? Nope, the study was done perfectly well. And I would 100% back up the, the, the data in the study because what they're showing is that if you take, and they, they use a kind of generic cocktail of probiotics, right? The 15 strains or something like that, 50 billion CFUs. What they showed is that when you take an antibiotic and it brings down your own commensal bacteria, and, and it brings down the stomach acid and the pH and all that, uh, or increases the pH, brings down the acidity, you take a high-dose probiotic, those bacteria are going to come in. The ones that survive through are competing now for binding sites against your, your uh, commensal bacteria. So it's slowing down the return and recovery of your commensal bacteria because this product doesn't make any sense. You know, it doesn't make sense why you would take that kind of product. To, to work towards combating that and improving the understanding around that, we published a study very recently showing that when you administer a pro, uh, antibiotic to a microbiome, not only, of course, does it disrupt the ecosystem of the microbiome, but it also increases the permeability and it increases the inflammatory response, right? And then we took put in a spore after the end of the antibiotic, and we showed that when you add in the spore, you actually recover the commensal bacteria faster, you actually reduce the permeability, and you reduce the inflammatory response. So the spores make sense because they're going in there relatively low dose and they're orchestrating a return of your own microbiome versus the other stuff that's just kind of nonsensical, right? So we could jump into what is a spore. I think that was one of your questions. Yeah, no, I, I would love that. Absolutely. So how do we even come about this, right? What would this whole idea of these spore-based probiotics? So the first thing was this whole survival issue. And again, I go back to this purpose idea where 
I'm like, okay, you have to take these microbes and you have to like be so delicate with them and keep them in the fridge and wrap them in velvet and, you know, make sure you don't shake them too hard and, you know, don't scream at them because they'll just die off and like all of this gentle stuff, right? And then I started seeing companies coming out with like the version of the probiotic wrapped in seaweed carefully or these special capsules. If we have to put that level of engineering to these microbes, they are likely don't have the purpose of surviving through the gastric system and functioning as a probiotic, right? Nature did not intend them to do that. And so if that is the case, then is there a bacteria or bacterial species or group that does have that capability of naturally surviving this harsh antimicrobial environment going through the gastric system? So if it does, then maybe nature intended it for, to be a probiotic. So through our kind of survey and, and research around these types of microbes, we find that these bacillus endospores have this capability of putting a, an armor-like coating around themselves. So they put a, uh, a protein calcified coating around themselves and they sit there dormant, not multiplying. That's how they exist in the environment in, in part as well. So then when we gain exposure to them by hanging out in the environment and they enter into our system, that armor-like coating allows them to survive through the gastric system almost 100%. So here is a bacteria that has this really unique capability by nature to be able to survive this harsh gastric environment and get into the gut viable, right? So that's a very important thing. So that's the first thing we honed in on them and said, okay, nature has some purpose for them to get into the gut. So let's see if they do anything in the gut. And then as it turns out, as we started investigating, we've come to find out that they've been used in the pharmaceutical industry in Europe, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia since 1952. A long time. The Sanofi Aventus, one of the largest pharma companies in the world out of France had launched their first prescription probiotic product. And it may be one of the first prescription probiotic products in total as a bacillus endospore. And it was to treat gut infections. It was to treat chronic upper respiratory illness and so on. So a number of immunological and infectious things. And that product is still on the market today. It's been on the market for now 60 plus years used in hospitals and clinics and all that. So I said, well, okay, clearly there's a lot of evidence that this stuff works and does something. So we started digging through the research and most of what we found was the amazing ability of these spores to upregulate immune response, to kind of upregulate our defenses because they interact with the immune system really well, especially in the gut, the payers, patches, and other tissues in the gut. But then they also did a fantastic job of something called competitive exclusion. Competitive exclusion is the ability of the bacteria to basically fight off dysfunctional bacteria. So they'll come into the gut, they will use a process called quorum sensing where they read the microbial signatures, and through that quorum sensing, they can identify problematic or overgrown microbes. They'll go sit next to those microbes, they'll produce things like antimicrobials and so on, and bring down the growth of those infectious dysfunctional bacteria. How does that bacteria know when it gets into the sea of microbes, which one is a problem for us, right? Just, just think about that. Like, how does it know? How does it have that information? And we know this very specifically. There's lots of studies on it. We've now done two studies. One is publishing soon that was done at the Cleveland Clinic. And that study showed, and this is in a mouse model, they can create an infection, a C. diff infection in the mice. And then when you add the spores in, the spores enter into the system, they will look for the C. diff, they will find the C. diff, they'll sit around the C. diff, and they will suffocate the C. diff uh, by stealing all its nutrients. 
right? And bring down the growth of the C. diff, not harming any of the good commensal bacteria around it. The intelligence and the purpose, again, of these types of microbes is, is uncanny. And so we said, okay, well, that sounds like nature has kind of designed them to do this kind of function for us. So they're very unique probiotics. Now, then we took the leap and said, okay, if they have the capability of uh, bringing down the growth of problematic bacteria, maybe they have the capability of increasing the growth of functional good bacteria. Maybe they are the orchestrators of the, of the gut microbiome. Maybe our gut microbiome is a garden and they are the gardener because they know better than we know what our microbiome is supposed to look like as it turns out, right? And sure enough, we started doing studies. We published one in August of last year where when you put the spores into the system, you, of course, not only combat pathogenic or overgrown organisms, it increases the diversity of the rest of the species quite dramatically. And it especially increases the diversity or the presence of these keystone bacteria. These are microbes that are very important with regards to protecting the system. So they are the gardeners for our garden. And that's the part that's really mind boggling to me. And then we took one more leap, just as a last point, And we said, okay, if they can essentially fix the microbes, the microbiome uh, population, maybe they can fix problems associated with the microbiome dysfunction like leaky gut. So leaky gut became, we became the thing we honed in on, right? So leaky gut is um, intestinal permeability, of course, and leaky gut is now pretty well established as a major driver of chronic illness. It's like one of the root causes of numerous chronic illnesses because it's a constant source of inflammation, right? So we said, okay, we are so bold that we would say that the spores, because of their ability to change the microbiome, can also dramatically improve leaky gut. And sure enough, in 2017, we published a human trial showing that the spores significantly reduced leaky gut in a period of 30 days without doing anything else different. No diet changes, no nutrition, nothing, you know, just... Uh, these were these were mostly college students, and they were doing nothing good for themselves in that thirty day period, <laughs> with the exception of taking the scores on today, right? And, and sure enough, we had a, over a sixty percent reduction in intestinal permeability. Wow! That thirty day exposure, all of it because the spores are going in and changing the microbiome. That is absolutely amazing. No other probiotic that I'm aware of has shown to have that kind of effect the kind of effect that makes a significant measurable change in the sea of organisms in there. Because remember we talked about earlier, no matter how, how high the dose of your probiotic is, it's minuscule compared to the ocean of bacteria that you're sending it into. So then the only way they would have a profound effect is if they have a way of impacting the rest of that ocean. And because we haven't had to do any sort of smart engineering to try to get them to do what they do, we just had to be smart enough to recognize it and utilize it. Again, we're not trying to outsmart nature, right? We're trying, we're not trying to go, hey, nature, this is what you your purpose is and you intend to do. We're going to circumvent it and do it a different way. We were just smart enough to try to find out what nature created for us and capture that, harness that, and test it so we understand how it all functions. So that's that's the spore-based probiotics. I, I love the analogies and I think there's going to 
really be beneficial in helping people understand um, and weed through. That's my whole point in asking you this question. It was I, I saved it for last because I felt like it was one of the more important questions to ask you. This sea of of products, and you know, it's not just the probiotics industry; it's it's across the board, and it just it irritates me beyond belief. What I see, and you know, these these little catchphrases, this little marketing on Instagram and, and, uh, you know, these odd delivery systems. And it's just, it's unfortunate because these products are really quite expensive. Like what are they really doing in the body? And, and that's one of the, the reasons I love your products and the formulation is not just they work and they're effective. And I've experienced that myself and also with the people that I work with. But again, you really care about understanding the mechanism behind what's actually happening rather than just throwing a ton of marketing out there and saying it's, you know, it's got this many and all these strains and on and on and on. And yes, like, Again, going back to our our culture of more is better. Well, can I just take a pill and I'll be fine? But this intelligence, this great purpose, this design uh, is so key and so critical and what really makes you stand out. And I'm, I can't say enough about how appreciative I am of your wisdom and your knowledge and your desire to share what you know with all of us uh, so that we can be healthier and build a better world. Because that's really what we're talking about here, especially during this really difficult time. The thing I always try to remind people is there is so much hope in, in everything that's going on, right? So one of the things that to, to bring um, like a more positive light on everything that's happening is that the more we understand about how we're structured, the more we understand about the microbial world within us, around us, and so on, the more we understand how disease comes about, right? How illness comes about, how, um, you know, anxiety and all of this depression and inability to deal with stress, all of the things that really affect us once we are surrounded by stimuli that that create an effect on us, right? So if you imagine the population as a whole was very healthy and had great ability to handle stress and think reasonably and all of that stuff, you know, this pandemic wouldn't be quite the issue it is, you know, things like the election and all of the politics and all that wouldn't be quite the same detrimental impact that it does on our population. It's because we can't handle these things and because it puts us in really bad places. It puts us in really altered mindsets and all of that. That's the stuff and makes us sick ultimately, right? Physically sick. It gives us, you know, chronic illness. I mean, the stress of these things can create chronic illness and it does absolutely create chronic illness. And so how we respond to all of these things as a population is impacted by our microbiome, you know, and what is really hopeful about all of this is, you know, there are so many disease conditions that people struggle with and deal with that that seem hopeless in terms of their ability to improve the condition. Take dementia, Alzheimer's, for example, one of the scariest types of conditions you could have, you know, there's something very scary about losing yourself, losing your mind and, you know, being alive, but not recognizing all your loved ones and all that, like, that's a very inherently scary thing for us as humans. And, and there's no cure to it, right? So and the and the prevalence rate of these dis- cognitive dysfunctions are increasing dramatically. And I know, having worked with um, companies and people that specialize in, in Alzheimer's and uh, with the women's Alzheimer's movement and so on, that such a, a, a potent issue for people and such a source of, of stress and anxiety, when ultimately, based on the, uh, the latest studies, 
the biggest driver of, of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's in both cases is the gut microbiome. LPS, leaky gut from the, from the gut microbiome is a big foundational aspect of how the disease starts, right? And, and for the longest time, and it's still now, it's an incurable disease. So if you got it, then it's about like, oh my God, what is my future going to be like? You know, am I going to recognize my loved ones anymore? There's no hope. But with the microbiome studies that are happening, we can find solutions to all of these kinds of incurable, quote unquote, incurable conditions. So five years from now, six years from now, there may be a very simple probiotic solution for something as scary as Alzheimer's. That's the exciting part of everything that's happening from the research side of this world, right? Because most diseases are derived from a dysfunctional ecosystem, we can fix the ecosystem and that will give us a much better position and output on our wellness. So remember the hope out there. You, and, and, you know, people have so much more control over their health and wellness than they think, right? And if you are taking steps, if you're listening to programs like this and you're learning about simple things you can do to affect what's on in and around you, if you're struggling with something right now, your ability to overcome that will be improved dramatically if you can pay attention to those things. And like you've said a few times, it's not a magic pill. So it's not like the effect is going to be seen overnight. It's not like the effect is going to be seen in a week or two weeks or three weeks. You have to put in the work. It'll be realized in months. But when it is realized, it's profound and it can be permanent. And that's the key behind it, right? We, we can make really substantial permanent change. Yeah, I thank you for saying that. I think that gives a lot of people hope to hear you say that, especially with your background and all that we're talking about. And, and again, as you continue to progress with your research and your knowledge and what we're learning, I think, yeah, there's so much hopelessness going on right now and depression and suicide rates are up, domestic violence rates are up. And to hear that, to give people that hope, even if you're struggling with a chronic condition, there is hope and healing. Again, I just want to say I appreciate your your knowledge and your wisdom and your your willingness to share that with us. Yeah, please. I am happy to do it. Um, I really do appreciate the opportunity to do this. To me, one of the most important things that I do is uh, sharing information, right? Because it's about empowering people with, with knowledge that helps them change their lives and the people around them. And the way they learn about this stuff is through programs like yours. So I'm grateful that you step up and you do what you do and that you give people like me a platform to be able to talk about it. So thank you. And I, I do feel gratitude towards that opportunity. My conversation with Karan had so many clinical pearls. What really stood out to me is the magnificent intelligence that resides in our gut and the understanding that the systems that reside there are not accidental. This evolutionary design has great purpose in how our ecosystems happen and how they keep us happy and healthy. You can find Karan at microbiomelabs.com. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player.